20 this week and next week, and then we'll stop for uh, a few four weeks of Advent. Um, and then if you're, if you're new here, we always take the um, Sunday between Christmas and New Year's off. Um, so we'll have four weeks of Advent, we'll have a Christmas Eve service, and then next Sunday we take off, enjoy with your family, and then uh, we get right back at it again on the 7th. Um, are we good? Okay. Um, so let me say this real fast before we, well, I've got a few things. Um, yep, I've got a few things. Thank you guys. I haven't actually been on stage and been able to preach since um, you guys did pastor appreciation a couple weeks ago. Uh, I really, really do appreciate that. That means a ton. Um, this is the Bible that you guys gave me, which I have not used until this moment. Uh, and if I bend a page or if it falls off the stand, I will probably cuss up here, just so you know. Because um, this is the Bible of my dreams. I know I nerd out over Bibles, but that's what pastors do. Um, so thank you guys. That meant a ton. Is Kayla Gray here? Where? There you are. Uh, that cake was sinful, how good it was. So thank you for that. Um, but with all that being said, I just want to make sure, and, and maybe it's because I don't like compliments, so I always deflect, but um, the most loneliest job in ministry is not necessarily the pastor, but the pastor's wife. So, Bree, thank you for all that you do and raising kids and supporting and all the behind-the-scenes stuff. I really do appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, with that being said, the McCords are back. Um, they are not moving back. Don't get your hopes up. I tried. Um, but they're here visiting, which I'm excited to see that, and glad you guys are with us. Um, so Luke chapter 20, Dylan preached last week. Um, do you like that? That was stuttering made into niceness. Um, so Dylan preached the last two weeks and, and kind of piggyback into where we're going this week. But, but let me just kind of constantly remind why we do that. Uh, at 1030, which is in four minutes, there's going to be another gathering of the branch, but in Milledgeville. Um, and so one of our um, huge core values of multiplication, we want to plant churches that plant churches. And so one of the best ways to do that is to raise up more guys that can preach the gospel well. And so we're, we have a rotation now where I'm only preaching 60% of the time um, so that we can raise up Ricky, so that we can raise up Dylan, we can raise up other guys, um, so that when God op opens an opportunity for us to go plant, we take it. Um, so I know that I'm good looking and like you would love to see my face on a screen and make this church all about me. Sorry to disappoint, but that's not going to happen. Our vision is a little different. So uh, as you come and, and get more involved and start to see more and more speakers up here, um, that's why, that if we were going to make disciples and make disciples, that's what it looks like. So uh, where Dylan left off, we're going to pick up Luke 20, starting in verse 9. Um, so as a way of introduction, because that wasn't my introduction, here's the actual introduction. Um, my wife and I have started something, and I didn't get permission to say any of this, so I hope that this is okay. If not, just look at me and I will stop. Um, the last four to five years for our family has been crazy. So let me just kind of give a preface of what the last four years have looked like. We've moved three times, including moving to a new town where we really knew no one. Uh, we had three kids, which is uh, crazy. Um, 2014, 15, and 16, we had kids every single year. So Bri, out of those three years, was only not pregnant for, I think, like five months, uh, which is just crazy to think about. Um, I would make some kind of joke there, but I don't feel like you guys are quite with me yet, and so that would just be awkward, and we'll 
keep moving. So uh, we've lost loved ones. We've planted a church. We've sent out good friends to plant a church. We've hit guitars. Um, this is just a great morning. I'm just having fun so far. Anyways, so the last four to five years have just been crazy for us. There's just been stuff happening constantly. So we're finally getting to a season to where no more kids, the church is doing well, life is doing well, and we're finally starting to catch our breath and process really what's happened in the last four to five years. Um, and so I'm a verbal processor, external processor, and my wife is uh, the epitome of the opposite of that. And so we had this, well, by we, I had this great idea. Let's go to counseling. Let's go, like, not like marriage counseling, but counseling together where, like, I'll have 30 minutes, you have 30 minutes, so we can just kind of talk out some of the things. I highly recommend it. Um, even if you think life is great, like having someone peer into your soul is even better. Um, so counseling has been really great for us, but here we've been twice, and here's what we're starting to find. Um, when certain things happen, when this really one event happens, I go one way. I go angry, um, I rage, I get really upset, I get mad, I explode verbally, like I just, I end up all the way over here. But when the same event happens for my wife, she ends up all the way over here where she withdraws, um, she doesn't confront, she doesn't talk about it, she just kind of isolates herself. But we're both dealing with the exact same thing, just the way we respond to that is totally different. Uh, and this thing that we're centered around that, that, that the gospel is going to speak to is control. That when I cannot control a situation, I get frustrated to all ends. When Bree cannot control a situation, she withdraws. Am I okay to say this? Because I've already said it. So uh, <laughs> if I'm not married next time I get up here, that's why. Um, future preachers in the room, ask permission before you use your wife as an illustration. But she withdraws, she isolates, she kind of shuts down. But it's all centered around the same thing. And so what the gospel is going to preach through, what Luke is modeling for us through recording one of Jesus' parables, is how crucial this idea of control is. And I think how much of Americanized we are, how much we've been raised in this culture, I don't think that we really realize how much control and power and authority uh, just is normative for us. It's all we know. It's all we operate in. So when we look at what it looks like to have a relationship with God the Father, how much control really messes us up and holds us back. So Luke 20, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. And he, being Jesus, began to tell this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants, and he went to another country for a long while. When the time came, his servant to the tenant, he sent his servant to the tenant so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet yeah, a third. This one was wounded and cast out. Then, verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance might be ours. And they threw him out in the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? This is when the parable becomes real. Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. When they, the religious leaders, heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that they had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So let's pray. And Father, as we look at this parable that you've given to us, 
Uh, Father, would we see ourselves in the story? Would we not um, cast shame on these Pharisees, these religious leaders, because they are us? That we all struggle with control. We all struggle with authority. None of us quite get it yet. So God, would you encourage us through your word to become more and more like you by letting go? It's your name we pray. Amen. So as we start kind of understanding the context of this, because this is, this is just crazy, and Dylan opened up uh, a couple weeks ago with what would you do the last week of your life? If you only had a few days left to live, what would it look like for you? So here we are, Tuesday or Wednesday of Jesus' last days on earth. So he's two or three days away from being crucified, uh, from being put into the grave, and he knows this. He knows that it's coming. He knows that all the religious leaders have had enough, that the time is now during the Passover, that his murder is coming quickly, but he still takes time to sit down and teach. Now, just the nature and character of Jesus should blow our mind here because he is patient. He is kind. He is loving. These men that are about to kill him two days before he's going, no, no, please listen. Please listen to me. That your time is running out. This is a graceful message. Please listen to the words that I'm saying before your time runs out. If you knew that someone was about to murder you in two or three days, would you plead for their soul? Or would you shoot first? I would shoot first. Just saying. This is what we're dealing here with here. Jesus is pleading with these guys. Listen, I'm going to tell this parable so that you'll understand the truth of the gospel. And so this parable really is kind of self-explanatory. It's one of the easier ones that we've read and kind of worked through. Uh, because the man that owns the vineyards is God. The tenants, the ones that are there, are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders. That's who they are. And then when he sends the son, he's sending Jesus. It's a pretty obvious one for us to see. And it was obvious for them to understand what was taking place. But verse 13 is when the parable really starts to pick up. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? You can sense this. That, man, I'm, I'm trying to tell these people something. And the man who is God saying, what, shall I, what, what next? What else can I do? What length do I have to get to? Verse 14. Oh, so he sent his son, Jesus. But verse 14, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him. So that the inheritance may be ours may be ours. So there's some conclusions that we could draw that are starting to litter our way through. Why would they kill him thinking the inheritance would be theirs? They must have assumed that the father was dead. That if they could take this inheritance, if they could own it away from the son, then they must have interpreted that there is no God, that the inheritance isn't going to fall back to the father. If we take care of this man, the inheritance is then going to be ours. So by their own admission, what they're saying is there is no God. God is dead. Let's take care of this man, and we can have everything. You ever heard of squatters? Okay, so that idea was still alive here, that if someone lived on a squatted on a piece of property for three years, it was theirs. Everyone knew this, so this parable was taking place to saying, listen, God's not dead, God's not real, the man is dead. So if we just kill his son, then we're back in control, we're back in authority here. So what is the original point? What is Jesus trying to say? Because the, the, the religious leaders react pretty harshly. So when Jesus says, when I, or the man, when he comes, he's going to kill everyone that destroyed his son and give the property away. 
So this property that I owned, I didn't intend to keep it. I'm going to give it away. And who did they respond? Who did the Pharisees and religious leaders jump to? To the non-Jewish people. So that's why they gasped. There's an audible gasp. Surely not. You would not do that. I understand the point of this parable. And we see this rolling out in verse 16. I get it. I understand what you're saying. Surely you wouldn't give our land away. Surely you wouldn't give our control away. Surely you wouldn't give our authority away. Because we're the chosen people, God. We're the chosen people, Jesus. We are the Jews among Jews. You wouldn't take this land away from us and give it away. So we can start to even hear our own voices littered in with the Pharisees. Surely you wouldn't take what's mine and give it to someone else. Surely that there's something else happening here, because I've worked hard for this. Verse 17, but he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. So they, they understand this. They understand this language, but what they're having a hard time is giving up their control, their authority. So the passage that Dylan taught last week really kind of feeds right into this. So when the, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw that Jesus was teaching, they come and, came up and asked him a question. On what authority are you doing this? And Jesus knew what he was doing. I think um, Dylan, in his military way, said, you don't play games with God. I think he said it just like that. Because um, he's, y'all know Dylan? Or y'all, do we need to turn on some lights and get some smoke and fog going? Are we here? Don't make me start preaching. Just kidding. Um, so anyways, Dylan opened this up. You don't play games with God, that there isn't some way you cannot manipulate him. But what the Pharisees and the religious leaders were all caught up on is this word authority. This word authority. And in the Greek, um, it says power of choice or liberty of doing as one pleases. Exosia. On what control are you doing this? Who says you can control the situation? Who are you, Jesus, that you have authority, that you have the power of choice, the liberty to do what you please. Who are you to be in control? Is what they're asking him. So when he responds, listen, don't you know what Isaiah says? Don't you know what the Bible says? That the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? So this idea of cornerstone, I don't think we really fully grasp what that looks like. But, but when you're building a new building, when you think stone and rock and this huge um, building, the cornerstone is the first one that you lay. And if it's not perfectly square, then the pitch of the roof is going to be off. Then this wall is going to be off. The angles are all going to be off because if it's one degree off, then every time you add a new layer, the wall is going to fall out. Or if it's one degree off this way, every time you add a new stone, the wall is going to get a little farther off. And what they're saying is the stone that has been rejected is Jesus. He is the ultimate authority. He is in control of what's being built. But we want ultimate authority, don't we? That we want ultimate control. That we want to know that we are in control, that we have what it takes, that it's up to us. It's not really up to Jesus. So I'm going to come to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do what's required of me. I'm going to memorize Bible verses. I'll throw a little bit of money in the offering plate. As long as I still feel and remain under control, I'm okay with this Christianity thing. And the Pharisees, by God's grace, were confronted with this idea of you are going to lose 
control and it's actually a good thing for us. So there's moments and there's times as we're preaching through this, through the gospel of Luke, that we see these Pharisees and go, man, these guys are idiots. How could they miss it? But we get to this parable, we're all going, oh, that's us. How ingrained are we to us, to our own culture, to our own authority, to our own control, that we want to control everything? But can we submit to the lordship of Jesus and still be in control? There's no way. But Jesus, in his grace, continues and says, everyone that falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls, it will crush them. Same thing is mentioned in Isaiah, Psalms. He's quoting the Old Testament, that there are consequences. If we don't place Jesus as the cornerstone, as the full authority, as the controlling factor in our life, there will be consequences. That we will stumble over this and fall to pieces that if we don't submit to the control to the lordship of Jesus, then we'll be crushed by his authority. It will happen. It will happen. So, as we continue to move forward, just think for yourself for a second. Do we have an authority issue? Do we have a control problem? Do we like to control the room to manipulate the situation to where we can stay in control? And maybe it looks like me, the, the really uh, directive personality where I want to walk into a room and know that I'm dominant in that room. But for some of you, control looks like I just want to sit back and let everything happen. That is how I'm controlling the situation is I don't have to engage in the situation. Because if I have to engage, I can't take what they say or I can't respond to what they say. So then I'm out of control. So control looks totally different for tons of different situations. But the root here is that we as Americans, we want to control. We have the ability, we have the freedom to control. And this is a clashing truth with the love of the gospel. So here's just a couple things that I want us to draw from this story. Some, some ideas that I've just as I've been writing, it keeps coming to my mind. That the myth of control or the delusion of control, because we all feel like we're in control. These tenets in this story felt like they were in control, but, but here are three ways I'm being a good Baptist today. I give you three, but they don't alliterate, so I apologize for that. There's three ways that we feel like we have the authority, the, the exosia, the power to make this choice. And the first one is that we own it, so then we control it. So these tenants probably in their mind were thinking, these guys need to get off my land. They can't have any of my fruit. So when the man, when God was sending these guys who we know now were the prophets, were sending them to the land, they were saying, get off my land, I own this. But isn't it funny how the owners were also called tenants? They didn't actually own the land. They took what the father or the man had given them and assumed ownership over it, but it was never theirs to begin with. They were the tenants. So as we're starting to understand the myth of control, do we actually control anything? No. We, we talk about this all the time. The skills that you have to have, the, or the brains that you have to get you into UNG, the skills and the understandings you have to have a career, where do those come from? Were there not things that you were naturally good at and naturally bad at? So you might have worked really hard in college. I'm not taking that away from you. You might have continued into grad school and done all this kind of stuff and, and praised God for those schools and those abilities that were grown, but, but wasn't there some natural ability already present for you to move that direction? Here, here maybe uh, if, you're, if you have not bought a house yet, let me 
kind of save you for some embarrassment for a second. This is where I see this happen all the time. First time home buyers get all excited. They stand in the front yard. They have this little pig like picture. I said pig. I don't know what I said pig. Maybe you can pose as a pig. Look at my house. But I have this picture of first time home buyers. The keys are in the ground or in the air. They're like, woohoo, I own this house. It's our first house. And then they quickly start to realize you don't own anything. The bank owns that house. So you have full control within there to do what you want. You can paint colors. You can knock down walls. You can have all the fun you want to. But stop making those payments for a couple days and see who actually owns that house. So we have this ability, this thing of this is mine. I own this. No, my friend, Regent owns that. That then sold it to Chase and then sold it to Flagstar. That's what happened to us at least. We have a new mortgage broker every year. So that's who owns the house is the bank. So then when you buy house number two, you are really reluctant to say, home buyer, look at these keys. I own this house because you know the bank owns you. So when we're walking through this world, we have to understand we don't own any of this. So control starts to become a little easier when we realize everything is a gift from God. And he gives and he takes away whenever he pleases. We own nothing. So what do we control? What do we own? What do we own? Nothing. Now, the second thing that we see when, the, when these men keep coming back to these tenants, just taking back to the master what was rightfully his, that they punish them. And every time the punishment gets more and more and more severe, one of the conclusions we could draw, we could start to tease around a little bit is they probably didn't trust the man to begin with. They probably didn't trust the master for sending these guys to do what they were supposed to do. If we can't control it, then we don't trust it. And if we don't trust the one that's in control, then we don't have much of a relationship. So the myth here that we're starting to see is that we cannot trust God to be in control. And we don't have to, we don't have to get too personal on this one because if we were honest, we see this play out constantly. In relationships, we don't trust God to provide a relationship for us. In finances, we don't trust God to provide financially for us. When God asks us to do something, we don't actually follow through with it because we don't trust God's going to lead us through the next step. We don't trust God. So this myth, this control issue is really rooted in this idea of trust. Can we trust the one that controls? Can we trust the one that holds everything together? Maybe another way to ask it, has God ever given us something that he broke his trust on? Not momentarily, zoom out, understand the big truth here. Can we actually trust God? The other thing that we have to see here, that just the conclusion, the myth of control, is that if we give up control, we look weak. If we give up control, we look lowly. If we give up control, we have no power, no authority, and we're going we're gonna to ingrain a lot of shame for who we actually are. Why were these guys fighting these uh, master, or the servants that were coming from the master? Why were they fighting so hard for this land? It's like the theologians said, if you're not, you're not a man if you don't own land. A theologian didn't say that. Anyone know where that came from? Oh, brother, where art thou? There we go. There we go. Thank you, Matthew. Right? So you're not a man if you don't own land. The major way that your appearance, that reputation, your authority was in these biblical days was land. 
These guys were fighting tooth and nail to have this land because if they didn't, what were they going to look like? What were they going to appear to be? How weak, how timid, how lowly were they going to be? So here's just a a quick Google search on this. Uh, Some web titles that would appear to help us get through these situations. Seven phrases that scream lack of confidence make you look weak. You know what one of those phrases were? I'm sorry. So in the culture that we live in, do not apologize because it makes you look weak. You know another phrase that makes you look weak? I don't know. Now, we kind of joke about this, but it's ingrained in us that we're not supposed to apologize, that we're not supposed to admit that we don't know because it's going to make us look weak. How to be kind without being viewed as weak and naive. That's ingrained in us. Don't let have anyone have control or authority of you. Be nice, but do not look weak. How to stop being a weak and vulnerable man. There's a whole website around this idea, how to stop being a weak and vulnerable man. Now, I, if we had more time, I would love to dive into this one. Because, yes, has God trusted men to shepherd the family around him? Sure. But not on your own authority, not on your own control. On God's authority and God's control. Be the protector, be the provider. Yes, by all means, but you are not in control. Now, what happens then to us when we start really ingraining this into our mind, into our ethos, that we have to be in control, that we have to have the final authority, that if it's not up to us, then who? What starts to ingrain in us through this process? I think one, I mean, I could list a million, but I think one is anxiety. That we start to feel anxious. Because this illusion that we're not actually in control pops up all the time. That we feel like, I'm not in control, I've got I've to rein this in, I've got to fix this situation, but we're constantly walking into new situations where we don't know enough, we don't have enough, we're not smart enough to be in control. We were coming back from a wedding yesterday in, in Laura, which Laura says a bunch of things that you should probably not listen to, but this one was f- fantastic. <laughs> this, this one just, I mean, the, whole, the rest of the car ride home, I just kept marinating over this. Because they're in a really good season of life right now. Stability is good. Ricky's got a great job. They're about to have a baby. Everything's going well. But Laura said, I don't, I don't put any hope in this stability. I was fine without it, and I'll be fine if it happens again. In this moment, it's great, but we were fine before, we'll be fine later, so I'm not putting my hope in this stability. What Lord was saying is, God's in control, not us. So if he chooses for us to walk through a season of stability, praise God for that. If he chooses for us to walk through a season of instability, praise God for that. That is the freedom, that is a lack of control going, God knows what's best. We're going to work hard, we're going to pray hard, we're going to do what he's asking us to do, but ultimately... This season is not going to cause anxiety for us because anxiety means that we're in control. We're trying to take control of the authority in that situation. So here's what psychology today says about um, insecurity and, and control and anxiousness. So how do you live in such a world without experiencing control anxiety? You give up demanding certainty. But how do you do that? The answer lies in the cultivation of courage. The cultivation of of courage. Attaining serenity is possible only if you face the uncertainty of the future with courage. 
This means refusing to cave to the fear of uncertainty. That means forcing yourself to walk away from your um, worry and to do so concerning constructivity with your life. It means having the courage to accept yourself as inherently flawed, as part of the universe that offers no guarantees, and as, as a being that lives imperfectly and that is imperfect. Now that's a great start, right? But like, what if that was it? I mean, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, I'm not knocking psychologists. We are in counseling. It's great. It's helping us. But what if we ended here? Psychologists say to end anxiety, to lose this feeling of being in control, you need to have the courage to know you're imperfect. Just have the courage. Now, if we know the rest of the story, we should celebrate and say, yeah, I have the courage to know I'm imperfect, but I know the one that is perfect, and so through him, I am made perfect. Like, we have the rest of the story, so we should boast even more. Yes, psychologists, I totally agree with you. Let's have the courage to admit that we are imperfect. I think Paul did that numerous times. When I'm weak, then I am strong. Here's all my imperfections, but we can do that not because of courage, but because Jesus came to die for us to make us new creations. That's why we can boast in our, encourage, or in, in our courage and our imperfections, because Christ has made us whole. When we start to see this, when it starts to really marinate with us, then yeah, I'm going to lose all control. I never had it to begin with. Control is just a myth that I'm walking through day-to-day life. The one who has control is Jesus Christ. I'm going to boast all the more in him. So flip with me real quick to Acts chapter 4. We're going to end with this story. What does it really look like for us to completely give up control and to say, no, Jesus, you take the wheel. Just make sure you're with me. Good old Carrie Underwood. (laughs) Helps us every day. But seriously, I think this story epitomizes what we see here and even uses the same language that the Pharisees and the religious leaders attacked Jesus with. What authority and what control and what power do you have to do this? Acts chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. And just the, the context of this, um, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. The church is exploding, and we get to see a little bit of it. Acts chapter 4, pick it up in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, them being the disciples, arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So around 15,000 is the best estimate of people that came to faith through the preaching, the proclamation of Jesus being in control, not you, the freedom that comes in that. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were part of the high priestly family. And they set them in their midst and they inquired, by what power, by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And this is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So never once did these guys say, on my authority and my control with this man healed. Because of me did 5,000 men become saved. Never once. It's only by the control and the authority of Jesus Christ that any of this take place. So, so what does this look like then? I would say the first thing that I see just from this and encouraging us to, to release control, release authority, and put all of our control, all of our authority, all of our hope of Jesus Christ, this does not lead to a life of apathy. It leads to a life of boldness. Do you see any apathy in these disciples? I mean, do you realize that as they're talking to these men, these are the same men that had Jesus killed. These men, they, they, that Peter knew who these guys were, that they had the authority to kill Peter on the spot. And he said, no, listen, you guys are fools. You rejected Jesus, but I'm telling you, I'm doing this on the account of Jesus, by the strength of Jesus, on the authority of Jesus. So when we relinquish control, we don't get apathy, we get boldness. We get to walk humbly in confidence knowing, man, Jesus is going to do this. It's on his authority, it's on his control that I get to do this anyways. He's going to want them to make it happen. Another thing that we see is that they're not fearful, but they're free. Now listen, if we could dive into this one more. The myth, what we understand control to be, is that that's where freedom comes from. That if I'm in control, that I'm in authority, if I can navigate where the ships go, or if I'm in control of all of this, well, then there is freedom found in that moment when I'm in control. So we're very slow to relinquish control because then there goes freedom. But did there look like freedom in the apostles? I mean, was freedom on the lips of their mouths that they're speaking to the religious leaders? Was it their freedom there for them to go and do whatever they pleased? Don't we see this throughout Scripture that, that as long as we're spreading the gospel, the good news, there's freedom there? That we're not slaves to anything we just sang about it. We're not slaves to our own doubts, our own fears, our own abilities or inabilities. We are free because Christ is our authority. Christ is our control. We can do whatever in his name. And the last thing we see is that they were never worried but confident. We put control back where it's supposed to be. We gain this confidence, this humble, quiet, do you know who my dad is? This confidence that, man, all authority, as, as Matthew 28 says, all authority is his anyways. So why would I want to control or attempt to control anything when he owns it all to begin with? So, so what then do I do? Man, I'm giving the control and the authority to him. I'm going to walk in this new spirit of confidence, knowing that whatever, he, whatever I ask in his name, it will be given if he has all the control to begin with. So, so here's where, if I could just kind of end the plane a little bit. The way that we define a disciple here, someone that knows, believes, and obeys Jesus. So ultimately, what do I want us to know from this parable? What is God trying to speak to us about control? Ephesians 2, which I know a lot of us, that's just one of our favorite Bible verses. You don't have to flip there. But Ephesians 2 says it this way, and this is the first thing I want us to know. 
And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power, if you did flip their power of the air, the spirit that was now at work, and the sons of disobedience. This word power is the same word of authority, this exonia. So this power, this authority that we feel like we have, that we don't want to relinquish to God, was never actually our power or authority to begin with. It's from Satan. It's from the world. So we are already walking in this. We have no power or control or authority anyways. The control or authority, the power that we think we have, is just our sinful nature. That's where this authority comes from. It's just our sin. It's the power, the air, the spirit that is now at work in our disobedience. So when I'm pleading with you, when I'm pleading with my own soul to relinquish this power and control and authority back to God because it's rightfully his, I constantly have to remind myself I had no control or authority or power to begin with. It's the sin that's in me that makes me feel like I have control or authority. I don't. And if you're still wrestling with this, here's another thing I just want you to see from this parable. That the man sent servant after servant after servant and his son to come teach you this lesson that he did not stop pursuing, that he didn't do a one and done, that he pursued, that he came after, that in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, was pleading with you to stop acting like you own the land and give it back to the landowner, to stop acting like you have control and give it back to God. He was pursuing constantly all the way up to the point of sending his own son, whom he knew we would murder, that he's pleading with us, he's pursuing us. So stop running from that pursuit. So the next, if we want to believe, I want us to believe that his way truly is better than our way. Colossians, or Colossians 1.13 says it this way. He has delivered us from the domain, from the exosia, from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What do I want us to believe? That the only reason we're able to relinquish control and authority and give it back to God is because of the power of God. It's only him that can do it in us. So for us to act like, yes, I have a control and authority problem, so I'm the one that can fix my control and authority problem is going to perpetuate the fact that we have a control and authority problem. Who is the one that fixed this? It's only through Jesus Christ, his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What does it look like for us to obey? I'm going to read a longer passage. I ask you to flip with me to 1 Peter 2. And we'll, we'll end with this one. What does it then look like for us to fully obey that God is in control, not us? 1 Peter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 4. What does it look like for us to hand over all control and authority to the one who already owns it all? First Peter 2, pick it up, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, 
but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like a living stone, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So what does it look like then for us to give all of our control over? Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Not by our own doing, not because we're in control, not because our authority matters, because God in his riches is in his grace even as rebellious as we are, still sent messenger after messenger after messenger and now his son to implore with us, lose your control, your fictitious control and follow me. There's a martyr missionary that put it the best way. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool to lose what he cannot gain, oh sorry, to lose what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to lose what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So let us lose this idea that we're in control so we can gain Christ the King who is in control. So let's pray. Father, as we sit here this morning, our, our prayer is simple. What are we trying to control that we need to release to you? As we take communion this morning, the prayer is simple. What are we trying to control that we need to relinquish to you? Father, we apologize when we try to live as though we are our own authority, that we own all of this, that we are in control of all of this. Father, would you forgive us of those sins? Father, would you help us to realize that even though we are rebellious, running from you, constantly trying to be our own control, our own authority. You never stop pursuing us. You send messenger after messenger after messenger, and now your son. Jesus, would we remember that? Would we understand that we have no control? We have no authority, that you own all of this. Father, for us to lay down our pride, lay down our false sense of authority and control, and to humble ourselves under you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the, the one that has all authority, has all control, has all power. Father, that's where true joy is found. So God, as we take communion this morning, would you speak to us as we get the bread, which represents your body, as we dip it in the juice, it represents your blood. As we see the sacrifice that you made for us, that we can become sons and daughters. God, would that be a precious picture that you are the ultimate authority, that you are in control, not us. And would we repent, would we change 
our mind on the areas that we think we're in control? Would we lay those at your feet? Would we take communion understanding all that you've done for us and rejoice and celebrate that we don't have to be in control because you already are. And that's where freedom is found. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So when you guys are ready, we'll